Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. This is the city. Los Angeles, California. A lot of it has always been here. The mountains, the deserts, the ocean. Some of it had to be developed, like oil and water and the land. The rest was built from scratch. A human mind conceived this and this. Man has an instinct to create, or to build, or to improve. But the human mind can go other ways too. Sometimes it gets lost, then it needs guidance. Reading signs and obeying them can sometimes help a confused mind. They tell you which way to turn, when not to turn, where not to drive, where not to park. In my business, this sign means something whether you drive or not. Sometimes, if you don't heed it, you'll see this sign. I work here. I carry a badge. It was Friday, October 6th. It was cool in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of Juvenile Division. The boss is Captain Morris. My partner's Bill Gannon. My name's Friday. We were assigned to Juvenile Patrol, and we had just gotten into the field. We received a radio call to go to a theater near Olympic and Western. We were told the manager would give us the details. All we knew was that a report had been received on a juvenile ADW. Assault with a deadly weapon. The story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. So, just by a show of hands, how many have seen an episode of Dragnet. Okay. Uh, more than I thought would, would raise their hands. 
Oh, so Dragnet is, if, for those of you who don't know, um, Dragnet is an old TV series. It's a crime drama that, uh, was, that used um, true stories, and it focused on two detectives, LAPD detectives, that seemed to always get their man. Uh, so the original series was uh, aired in 1951, actually, and it ran from 1951 to 1959. Took a little sabbatical, and then it came back in 1967 and ran from 1967 to 1971. The beginning of this episode was 1968, and um, it... The, the lead actor, uh, Jack Webb, um, played Sergeant Joe Friday. And he made Sergeant Joe Friday kind of a household name with the phrase, can you help me? Just the facts. He made himself a household name, right? He would interrogate people, and as he did, he would just, just say, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Well, I think it's reasonable to say that Dragnet was actually presented as if life was oriented in this black and white, good or bad, right or wrong kind of context. Just the facts, Sergeant Joe Friday would say, as maybe the people he was interrogating would begin to talk about relationship or cause or anything that would be relational in nature, he would stop them and say, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm gonna say today because I do believe that our actions um, have consequences, they do. Some of them are mild, like dialing the wrong phone number and getting the wrong person to very severe. So our actions always have and probably always will have consequences. But when we, as the people of God, orient around a dragnet, just the facts, ma'am, kind of context, where life's posture is defined by simply wrong and right, good and bad, black and white, we leave little, if any, room to embody the things like love and grace and compassion and forgiveness, which move God's people to be in relationships that breathe restoration and reconciliation. In fact, 2 Corinthians, Paul says it kind of like this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if everyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. It goes also on to say that the old has passed away and all things have become new. Well, much like um, scripture, as, as we, are, we are taught every Sunday and even in disciple and other Sunday school classes, that context is very important to understanding the wholeness of the gospel narrative. I want to tell you a story today, a true story, which I think might help us better understand and help us see this ministry and message of reconciliation, this work of God's people and the call on God's people to embody this message of reconciliation to all humanity. 
to all people. So, I don't know if he is here today. Um, I haven't seen him today, but in honor of Bob Corey, who works tirelessly and has worked tirelessly with men and women and families of those who have been incarcerated, we are going to change the name of the story today to the story of Bob. So, I want to tell you the story of Bob. But before I tell you that story, uh, I think it's important for us to kind of journey a little bit and set the context for the story of Bob. Uh, In a way, kind of set the foundation for this story of Bob. So I'm going to go, we're going to start, and we're going to go all the way back to 2003. Okay, so I hope you've got a lot of time. You don't have any plans with your dads and fathers and all that. So we're going to go back to 2003, and we're going to hopefully set the context in an, in an effort to help us see this story of Bob in light of this call of reconciliation on our, on our lives. Also, not only, not only do I want to do that before I begin, I also want to ask you one quick question. It's a very simple question, um, a little bit prying at this point, but just want to say and ask, hey, what have you been up to lately? You don't have to answer. It was, what have you been up to? So as we walk through this story, as we walk through this context of setting up this story of Bob, um, maybe it's, it's okay to ask yourself, hey, what have I been up to lately? So here we go. It was, okay, I got to get my best um, Sergeant Joe Friday voice here real quick. <clears throat> it was 2003. It was Oklahoma City. It was a warm Sunday, summer morning. I had made an appointment with Reverend John Mendendorf for breakfast. I was instructed to arrive at the Jimmy's Egg on 39th Expressway around 9 a.m. We were to discuss a TMOQ. Oh, and I forgot. I'm supposed to play this now. There we go. So the story you are about to hear is true. Some of the names were changed to protect the innocent. But yes, it was. It was about 2003, and I called a friend of mine who was a, another youth pastor, and I said, hey, John, uh, I, need, I need to, we need to meet because I need to talk. Um, it had been about 15 years in ministry at that point, and to be quite honest with you, I was, I was just burned out. Um, I, I was just at a point where in youth ministry where everything was an event, and you just simply survived from one event to the next event, and the next event needed to be a little bit bigger and better than the last event, and it, was just, it just wore me out. And I, just be, I remember sitting across from John and saying, I just can't take it anymore. This is not the way it's supposed to go, I don't think. And if it is, then you need to talk me out of quitting, TMOQ. You need to talk me out of quitting because if this is what it's about, then I think I'm done. And in John Mendor fashion, he gave me books to read. (laughs) And I think he even, if he didn't, I think I imagine him saying, 
you know, Mike, if that's the way ministry has to be, then I don't want to do it either. And I remember walking away from that, that breakfast maybe a little bit more encouraged that ministry and being involved in, in the ministry that is um, the message of reconciliation could look differently. Well, eventually, um, like all, like what seems to be most pastors, except for John Mendorf, um, I resigned at one point, and um, Karen and I found ourselves uh, here at OKC First. We found ourselves in a small group with John and Kelly, uh, Mike and Del Duke, uh, Scott and Amy James, and Brett and Diane Dawkins, I think was that small group. And I can remember, um, I can remember that uh, being kind of a, a safe place for me and for us. We really didn't know what was gonna take place, but we just simply found ourselves here. Well, during that time, um, OKC First had two youth pastors. They had a high school youth pastor and a middle school youth pastor. And in a very short time, they both resigned. And um, I can remember John saying, you know, I think we're going to combine that into one youth pastor. And Mike, I'd like for you to help me find that guy. Will you be on this committee? And he said, but I got this guy. I want you to, I want you to to talk to, and I want you to get to know, and I want you to give me your opinion. And it was um, a guy from New York City. Um, his name was Richie. Um, if you were here when all of that took place, um, you'll probably know what I'm talking about. Richie was cool. He had a cool accent. He had charisma that just oozed out of him. In fact, Everywhere he walked, he just kind of, he was, you know the type, he just kind of left this trail of charisma everywhere he went. It's like, oh, Richie's been here. <laughs> you know, the guy was just, he was talented, he was musically talented, the guy was smart, he was everything that I always wanted to be, and nothing that I was, including the dreads. He had seriously cool dreads. Richie, Richie was, was great. Well, we offered the job to him, and he went back to New York, and he prayed, and he talked, and he, and he discussed, and ultimately he called and said, I got to stay in New York. Sorry, I can't come to Oklahoma City. And I'm not sure the time frame, but I can remember um, where I was outside of my house on the corner of 42nd and Penile when my cell phone rang and John was on the other line on the other end and said, Mike, uh, listen, I just don't know what else to do necessarily. I, I, everything comes back and I just wanna know, um, are you interested in this job? And I said, well, John, maybe. But here's the thing, John, I'm not interested in doing it um, status quo youth ministry. In fact, if you are looking for a Richie type, you need to keep looking because that's not me. That's not who I am, and that's not the kind of ministry that I will lead. However, if you're willing 
to give me the freedom to be a pastor that can lead our kids in the mission of Christ into our neighborhood and into, our, into other cities and, and really develop a ministry that looks less like an event than I think maybe I am. Well, long story short, 10 years later, this was our first logo. And I got to sit down, I got to sit down with uh, uh, a lot of good looking and great kids like this. And I got to walk and, and journey um, with a lot of students. Well, it wasn't, but about a year later, maybe, that uh, in the effort to understand what it meant to be a community church or a neighborhood church, I put a pin in Oklahoma City first and I drew a circle around Oklahoma City first on a map and I began to investigate what it was that was inside that circle and what kind of community lived and worked and, and maneuvered inside of that circle and we found uh, a few things, one of them being that um, food and child care specifically was a real issue. And I got together with a couple of folks, and they're both here today. Kristen, she read scripture, and Steve Stark back here. Um, they were two of the first adults that I grabbed, and I said, hey, I've got this crazy idea. Um, let's go into apartment complexes, or let's just go into our community, and let's give away some food, and let's just see what we find out. And we did. And we grabbed a handful of students and we took them with us and a little thing called Outpost was birthed. I remember one day taking our kids to Meridian Ridge. We get there and the entire complex is flooded with emergency vehicles, police and ambulances and fire trucks. And we're instructed not to go into the complex because there had been a significant issue and we turned around, we brought everybody back, and Steve and I said, it just doesn't feel right for us not to be there. So we left all the kids here, and Steve and I went back. And we did what they told us not to do, and we went into the complex, and we served our hot dogs. And on the way out, I'm stopped by a police officer who says to us, what do you guys do? And we told them, and he said, you know what? What you did today stabilized that community. We didn't necessarily know what we were doing. <laughs> we just knew we had to do something. We had to be involved. Well, fast forward to now about two years ago, um, the Cole Community Center has been built and is operating, and uh, John calls a few of us together. I don't know how many there were. There were maybe five or six of us together. And he says, listen, we, we have this great opportunity in the Cole Community Center. Um, and I want to talk about our neighborhood. And specifically, I want to talk about those people that are coming to the Cole Center um, during a time we call Open Gym. Uh, maybe if each of us could take a little bit of that, sec of, of that time and really get involved, maybe we could do something. And once again, not knowing really what I was getting myself into, not knowing what I was gonna do or how I was gonna do it, I just, I, for some reason, I just blurted out, well, I'll take them all. Surprised me as much as it did you, actually, I think. 
I said, well, there were four days a week. And I said, well, I just, I'll just come over every day. I'll just, I'll just make it happen. Well, about two years later now, fast forward to kind of today, I've been able to develop some really great relationships with those guys. They're my boys. They're my boys to the point that much like some of the times in youth ministry when kids just turn around to me fast and blurt out something that sometimes is, hey dad, I got to sit down with a young man and he says to me, you know, pastor, you're kind of like a father figure to me. They're my boys. I didn't know what I was necessarily doing. I just knew there was something to be done there. So here we are at the story of Bob. All of that to set up now the story. I told you, get comfortable. Now, I, I, before I, I tell this story, I want you to understand, I want you to know that, the, that all the things, oh, by the way, I forgot to click. This is Outpost. These are some of my boys. Um, I want you to know that, that this story takes place, and, and, and I am convinced that, it, that the, the capacity to see restitution and reconciliation in this passage or this story exists because of all of the little steps that had been taken prior to, all of the things that were, were built or just, in, we, we chose to be involved in, allowed us to move and be changed and transformed in such a way that this story of Bob could take place. So Bob is in high school. He lives in the neighborhood and he's a regular attender at the Cole Community Center. I see him almost every day and talk with him almost every day. Bob has never been in trouble with the law, actually, and for all accounts has defied the odds as the oldest of a single parent family with two younger siblings and absolutely no father in the, fig- in the picture. In fact, if he's late to school, it's nine times out of ten because he had to get his, kid, his siblings to school first. But Bob found himself really bored one day. It was a summer afternoon, and he was with a few friends, and he found himself really bored, and Bob made a really bad decision. And rightfully so, Bob was arrested and placed in juvenile custody. I got to talk to Bob on the phone while he was in custody. And although he was putting up a a tough front, I knew that he did not belong there. Well, a couple of months later, I get a call from the Oklahoma Juvenile Public Defender's Office wanting to know what my relationship with Bob was 
and if I was aware that he had been arrested. I told her that I was aware and began to explain what my relationship with Bob was. She went on to explain that in her meetings with Bob, the only person that she could come up with and he could come up with that might be a character witness for Bob's case was me. She asked me if I'd be willing to talk to her about Bob's case and his defense. Well, once again, not really knowing what all of that meant, what it was going to take, I knew that it was something that had to be done. In fact, it even felt like it was the window for us to begin talking about with the right people a ministry that uh, Logan Cruck and I had been talking about and John had been talking about for a few months called the OKC Foundry Restorative Justice Program. And I began to tell her about what that program would look like or might look like. And she said, let's see, let's put you on the stand and let's see what we can do. Well, about six months ago, I went to court with Bob. As I took my turn on the stand, I tried my best to respond to very harsh questioning by the prosecutor who simply wanted to put Bob in a nine-month lockup facility in in juvenile custody. Following her questioning, As I'm about to step down, the judge says, nope, you're not done yet. I want to talk to you some more. And the judge takes time to talk to me about what it might look like. What would we do? How would we do things if Bob was placed in our custody or in our program, the restorative justice, OKC Foundry? Well, somehow, Um, I was able to convince a judge. And before I stepped down, about an hour later, before I stepped down, the judge asked me, and she said, do you have anything else that you want to say in reference to Bob or in reference to your restorative justice program? And I remember remember saying to to her and expressing great stress in Oklahoma's current number one ranking in the incarceration rate in our nation and that when available and when at all possible, when people are willing to invest in the lives of others, it is a much greater work to be involved in restoration and reconciliation than just leaving people to the confounds of a system. And I asked, will you trust a couple of of guys who know this one thing, that this young man has a future and we want to see that future fulfilled? Well, the judge 
ordered, court ordered Bob to participate in the OKC Foundry Restorative Justice Program. Said, you've got six months and you need to complete these things. So we took Bob and we began to meet with him daily. Bob went through counseling, individual counseling, uh, anger management counseling, family counseling. We monitored his school and his classwork. We monitored his tardies and his absences. And he had to report and he had to justify everything that wasn't good. And we monitored not only his school and his counseling, but his community service. And he had to do labor. He had to do social give back, working with other people, giving back. He had to do a lot of hours. He went through job training. And during that time, not only going to school and doing all of that, he got a job. By getting a job, he was also able to pay all of his fines, his court fees, his fines, his restitution. And I'm pleased to say that in, at the end of May, when we went to court with Bob for his mid-program checkup, after three months, the judge was overwhelmed with the idea that Bob had already fulfilled all the requirements for his program. Bob's case at that three-month checkup was dismissed. You see, Bob's story would have been lost in statistics of the Oklahoma incarceration rate had we left him in a context of just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. As it turns out, when we see things through the eyes of Christ and we see them through eyes that love that offer love and grace and compassion and forgiveness, we see stories of reconciliation. We see stories of restitution. We see stories that give people hope and a future. So all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. I'm gonna be honest with you. I am not a theologian. Um, I am at my best when I'm kind of out there walking and talking and building and nurturing and whatever out there. That's where I'm at my best. So I'm going to leave. I, I, well, I, I want to read to you a quote from one of my, one of my favorite writers, N.T. Wright, as he very, very adequately gives us insight into this, this passage in 2 Corinthians. And he says, 
by exploring this theme of reconciliation, emphasizing that what has happened in and through the Messiah is not a matter of God claiming a world that didn't belong to him or making a new one out of nothing, but of God reconciling to himself his own world, his beautiful and beloved creation after the long years of corruption and decay. This explains what Paul is up to. If God was doing all this in the Messiah, that work now needed to be put into effect to be implemented. The great symphony of reconciliation composed on Calvary needed to be copied out into orchestral parts for all the world to play. And this is where we come in. God was reconciling the world to himself in the Messiah and entrusting us with the message and ministry of reconciliation. See, God through Christ is reconciling the world to himself. That means the reconciling work of God is transforming the people of God through Christ. God is not willing to allow us to become a statistic. Let me say that again. God is not willing to allow us to become a statistic. Again, revealing the length to which he goes to demonstrate his love for us. Thus we can say, and we say it all the time, God's mind about you is made up, and the news is good. But let's not stop there, shall we? Not only is God's at work in the people of God, but he has entrusted the continued message of reconciliation to be embodied by the people of God through the people of God. And in this we can say, not only is the news good, the news is that you, that I, that we are good enough. That we are good enough in Christ as the people of God to embody this message of reconciliation. Sometimes we have a great idea what that looks like. Sometimes it comes in the form of let's give away a hot dog and see what happens. So, John is going to come and he's going to lead us uh, in the Eucharist. Um, the table that gives us the nourishment needed for which we can embody this message of reconciliation. But before he comes, let me ask you that question one more time. What are you up to? What are you up to that is moving possibly all of humanity towards Love and grace, compassion and forgiveness, a message of reconciliation.